Welcome to the Giant Step Podcast with your host, Maurice Bernstein, as we take you on a journey into music and culture from the world of Giant Step. Hello and welcome to the Giant Step Podcast. I'm your host, Morris Bernstein. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Giant Step. And this week's conversation is with Brian Brader. Brian is the co-founder of Raucous Records, Uproxx, Big Frame, and Audigent. And we will be talking about his journey in the entertainment industry, uh, from growing up in New York to the start of uh, Raucous Records, and finally with uh, with Autogent. Uh We also talk about his thoughts on data and where uh, the industry is going. Please keep in mind that this was originally recorded uh, as part of Giant Steps Instagram Live series, uh, which was on January the 22nd, 2021. So please excuse any audio or sound issues. And also, if you're interested in following Giant Step, please do so on Instagram at Giant Step and visit our website at giantstep.net. And please feel free to send any comments or suggestions regarding our podcast series. So now please enjoy my conversation with Brian Breda. Brian, there you are. All right. Okay. We, we had a couple of technical difficulties in our, um, when, we were, when we were testing it, uh, but you're here. How are you, Brian? Great to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah. So I'm I'm really happy that you you agreed to do this Instagram live with me. I mean, you know, you and I are old friends, um, not only you know on a personal level, but also in 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 music and culture, and then all the other stuff. But I think what what's interesting about you, Brian, is um, you know you have managed to. Uh, you know, take your your, your skill set and take it across different verticals within entertainment and technology, and and build build great great things out of it. Um, so I think you you know you have a lot uh, to contribute as far as thought leadership and and just experience in doing all those great things. Um, so I think the first thing I'd like to do is for you to kind of tell tell us a little bit about you know, your, your background, um, you know, I, I know you grew up in New York, um, how that was and how you managed to get to where you are now. So um, tell us about the, the beginning, Brian. The beginning, uh, <laughs> I mean, the beginning was so many past lives ago, uh, but thank heavens, I don't really have too many distinct memories of those days. Uh, you know, the beginning for me, uh, was 1973. Uh, I was born in Miami Beach. I think my mother uh, wanted to birth me in some warmer weather, uh, having been born in February. Uh, very soon th- thereafter, ended up in New York City. You know, classic uh, municipal crisis, late 70s New York City. You know, one of my earliest memories is of the garbage 
piled up on either side of the sidewalk, you know, taller than I was. So I felt like I was going down this futuristic tunnel of garbage. You know, I, I remember the blackout of 1977 and my mother having to walk down 25 flights of stairs to get eggs. And I just remember, you know, really, uh, you know, very different New York City. Um, I'll never forget going to roller skate at the Roxy, um, uh, you know, on those family, uh, family days after kind of the all night parties. And I remember being, you know, on the exterior of the Roxy and it was just like a, a you know, it was like a, a war zone on the exterior. And then you go inside and there'd be like this magical place, uh, which was the Roxy Club. And, and how I, old were you? I mean, I was little. I mean, we're so, talking So this like, was sort of like family, they, 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 they'd have roller skating for families to go to during yeah. the day, yeah. Yeah, it would be like the days I would, you know, my parents were divorced. I think it was the days I, I saw my father. He would bring me there every now and again. And I, you know, I was obsessed with that part of 70s New York, which is, you know, on the outside, things were, they were fucked up. I mean, it was. You can swear on my Instagram. By okay, right, great. Right? Well, it, yeah. it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was, you know, acid rain was the color of the city. You know, everything was black. Uh, there's garbage everywhere. In, in the 70s, New York was, you know, more, especially downtown, was like a total shithole. Yeah. Um, but then you go inside these spaces, and I'll call Roxy a creative space, as I would call all the clubs. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, you know, anything having to do with artists or music in New York in the late 70s was, was, was very special. Just, just getting a little piece of that. Uh, in me, in my, uh, you know, the, the first six, seven years of my cultural DNA uh, had a lasting impact on me. Uh, you know, went on, was your classic kind of mid-80s, late-80s kid running around the city, uh, didn't have a whole lot of uh, discipline, uh, at least in my house, as far as curfew. Uh, or really any rules. So I was able to run around the city, get, you know, that, I, I think that vital experience of going to all these clubs, uh, underage, fake ID, um, hanging out with club kids, and just soaking in this, you know, it, 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 you know, it's just very different. And, and you, were, wait, you were at high school at uh, Horace Mann, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And is that where you met Jared? Uh, I mean, listen, I met, I grew up 10 blocks away from Jared on the Upper East Side. Uh, I mean, I, I met Jared probably in kindergarten. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. A long and time. For those who don't know, Jared Meyer um, was Brian's uh, co founder at Raucous. And then you guys went on and you did. Um, up rocks together and obviously still very very good friends so that's yeah. I, I never knew you guys met in kindergarten wow that's yeah we go we go you go way very, back. very way back so you you were at you were at a fancy uh fancy school um I a, yeah i mean my mom immigrant um 
you know, I was born in, uh, it, it was called Palestine back then. Uh, I kind of have a mixed background, you know, a little bit of uh, Middle Eastern, a little bit of, uh, of Jew, uh, a little bit of Romanian gypsy blood. My mom was an immigrant, though. She, uh, when she came to America, she had, you know, no money, couldn't speak English. Um, and, you know, was one of those blessed, um, blessed people, uh, you know, very beautiful woman. She became one of Wilhelmina models, uh, first models. Um, so she was able to make a little bit of money um, in the, in the garment center, classic Jewish, um, you know, uh, foundation stepping stone in business and in, mm -hmm. um, in building wealth, um, made a little bit of money and was able to send me to private school, which, uh, you know, obviously I was very grateful for just, just the experiences of going to that school in particular where, you know, uh, you know, I, I certainly was not the rich kid at the school. Right. And, you know, being around that kind of power and wealth uh, also influenced me. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience as well. And when did you first start sort of like feeling that music, you know, be, becoming yeah. obsessed with music. Yeah. Uh, what, what was your, when did that happen? Uh, that happened for me in 1986 when I started playing bass. So, uh, you know, New York City is, is, it's a great place for a teenager, right? I, I don't really know if it's the greatest place for uh, you know, a younger, you know, a, a younger child. So for me, I was like cooped up quite a bit, you know, nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old. I mean, I remember those years in particular, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I know I was just, you know, uh, you know, I don't think I was the happiest person. Right. And then, um, you know, I remember going to Manny's Music on 48th Street uh, with Jarrett. Uh, Jarrett had just bought a guitar. I didn't want to, like, you know, be the, you know, I wanted to have Jarrett my... just joined, so he, if he, if he uh -oh. disagrees with this, then he's... <laughs> Jarrett took me to Manny's. Uh, he, he got a guitar. Uh, he eventually got a very nice guitar, a Sadowski, a Roger Sadowski Stratocaster. Wow. Um, I wanted to do me, so I got a bass. And, um, uh, you know, you know, pretty much right there, I was, you know, hooked, you know, especially on the on that frequency, uh, excelled at playing the bass and, you know, had had that amazing high school ex experience of doing you know, doing some gigs, playing at CBGBs, playing with jazz bands, uh, you know, learning how to play upright bass. Um, and that was it for me. Uh, 
So you, so hip hop. I mean, you, you were you were listening to all the music that was coming, sort of like would that you were getting uh, affected to, um, and um, you. But hip hop, you didn't you didn't have a love of hip hop well, at that point. Or what would, yeah, I mean, listen, uh, I wasn't first wave. Like I wasn't at the Herc. Well, you're too young. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked to have been though. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I definitely consider myself second wave, just being in the village in 1986, 87. I mean, it was all punk, mm -hmm. hardcore, hip hop, everything. And for me, you know, you know, I was really just personally invested in studying jazz and, you know, the history of jazz, especially in New York City. Um, you know, it's in high school, I started having fun with gear and reverbs and drum machines and four and eight track recorders and all that stuff. Uh, you know, fast forward a bit, I'm at, I'm at Brown University, um, you know, not entirely doing my homework. And one thing about Brown, it had very, um, you know, cutting edge studios, recording studios, uh, you know, a real electronic music suite with one of the first Kurzweil keyboards and, you know, uh, the first, you know, the, the first Akai samplers, the 850, the 900, uh, you know, we had an SP-12, eventually we got an SP-1200. Um, and, uh, Jaron and I would make, you know, we'd make beats. Uh, we became friendly with quite a few of the local rappers in the uh, New England area. Some really talented artists like Jayu and Prospectors on a Mission and some others. Um, had a great experience. I mean, we made their mixtapes. We were their live music directors. We, um, you know, we were selling t-shirts. We were, um, you know, doing relatively big shows. We were opening up for artists like LL Cool J. And then we uh, visited all these A&R guys uh, at the major labels, you know. In New York, mainly? In New York. This yeah. is like 93-ish. Um, and and I believe we had just for your band to get signed. You were trying to get you. You were trying to get signed well, as artists. Our band, but the 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 the, the, the MCs that that Jared and I were working with. Um, you know, we were in the band to the extent that we were the live music directors. So I would play bass during the shows, but I wasn't really in right. the. Band, I guess yeah. um, I was more focused on the the MC. Uh, and, and we met with guys like Ruben Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, him at, um, Electra, right? Correct. Yeah. And much any of, 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 of the leading A&R guys in 93. So they're like at MCA, mm -hmm. a few other companies. And they were, you know, at, at that point, the music industry was on fire. Okay. This is before the peak, right? The peak is 99, 2000, like mm -hmm. right before Napster. This is about almost 10 years before the peak. Right. On fire. 
And it, I believe it was Ruben who looked at Jared and I. He's like, just start your own fucking label. Like, fuck us. We're whack. Um, he was and, right. <laughs> and, that, and that's what we did. Um, and, you know, and, we, and, you, and so you were still at Brown when you made a decision to start your own label? Or was that when you guys yeah, graduated? We, Jared and I accelerated our graduation by literally staying at school for two years straight. We didn't leave. So we did summer sessions and wow. and we got out about a year early. Okay. And so in the beginning of our senior year, we moved into um, 65 Reed Street uh, in Tribeca, which is where right. the raucous headquarters with the blue roof and mm -hmm. all the shenanigans uh and and when you were at brown um that, i think that's when we first met when you you guys were would start coming to giant step um it, it, we we just had this conversation and i think right. i was a fan of giant step before we met and then we formal we formally connected uh through danny wyatt yeah when we when jared and i were just recording some of the initial um raucous records like rose family and seven universal and the stuff that uh when john forte was anr at the company and where did the name come from how did you um i, I my vague memories just coming up with it you know just you know changing the spelling of a of a word it it actually started as raw management uh obviously that was not original <laughs> um and i think we just added the kus and then we spelled it out in caps and we're like bing the 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 logo creation is another story right that happened first the blade was straight um and then the blade bent and uh i believe you know it's something that jared and i and tim ronan and a few other designers worked on um until we perfected it you know we, we spent a lot of time getting that razor blade to look the way it did getting the r-a-w-k-u-s to be set in the handle of the blade and just even the you know just the pop art vibe around it um yeah i mean for for, for people who don't know i mean the raucous label really defined an era of hip-hop uh, not only in New York, but globally. I mean, um, you know, I would say hip hop, there, there were some bands, uh, hip hop groups that were kind of on the vibe, but you had a label that basically represented that. Whereas I wouldn't say, I mean, Tommy Boy had its own sound, but it had a lot of other sort of like sound. But whereas, but you know back the backpacking hip hop it, it was it was it was raucous i mean and and then you just started churning out artists that were just game changing artists um tell us a little bit about sort of like you know 
what that was like, you know, working with people like Most F, Aramanch, the Lyricist Lounge, the Sound Bombing yeah. mixtapes. You know, your marketing was unique. Um, you know, like I said, you were game changers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we were just, at, at the end of the day, you know, we, I think we'll be remembered as, you know, uh, you know, good patrons for the movement. I mean, we definitely invested heavily in, 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 in lyricism and in, you know, beat making, um, uh, and in, in a certain vibe, a certain style. And, you know, it wasn't one thing. You know, we, you know, a lot of people call us like, you know, the, the backpack label, but we were also putting out like that New York fire. Like, let's let's not mm -hmm. forget we had Farrell Monch signed and, mm -hmm. you know, Cool G Rap. And, you know, we worked with the Duck Down crew and just, you know, we put out Eminem's first record. I was going to say, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think for me, uh, you know, th things really changed when uh, LP, Just and Mr. Lan at Company Flow mm -hmm. uh, allowed us to participate in the in, in their community which was extremely diehard um you know company flow were, were, were it really if you really want to talk about like the very beginning it's it's going to be fun crusher plus now at the same time there was the lyricist lounge and we became you know really friendly with anthony and danny mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, after that, Perry joined the Lyricist Lounge. And it's through the Lyricist Lounge we met most. Uh, I knew Kwali just from, like, hanging out with him and, um, you know, doing what kids do together. Um, so I, I, I remember just in a social environment, just being around Kwali. You had most deaf, you had Kwali. Um, you had Lyricist Lounge. All of that was percolating in 97, 98. Um, and the other and thing, to, sorry, the other thing that people need to remember is you were an independent label at that time as well, right? Yeah, we, you, well, not only were we an independent label, we were an independent label with funding, right? Right. And you have to understand, at that time, at, at least... You know, the company that Jared and I looked at as far as like a model was Loud Records. Right. Right. Um, I think everybody had that as their model at that time. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, we learned a lot from Steve Rifkin um, and from John Rifkin and from and from SRC. Mm -hmm. um, so that was happening simultaneously as well. We were. The word got out, you know, uh, these guys seem like good people, good patrons, hip hop lovers. Uh, we like their team, right? Uh, they have funding. And, um, 
you know, they mean business. And, and, and we did, you know, back then your videos had to be amazing. Like your street promotion had to be thorough. The streets needed to co-sign what you were working on. Yeah. If the streets did not co-sign it, you had nothing. And that's, and that's why a lot of the major labels just failed to uh, break into hip hop because they had no credibility, you know, didn't matter how good some of those artists were that they signed, but they just had no credibility. Well, that was, th that was almost the kiss of death signing mm -hmm. to a major, right? Mm -hmm. Like you wanted to be on loud, right? You, you, you wanted to be, you know, if you were out West, you wanted to be on priority mm -hmm. death row. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, East coast, New York in particular, uh, you know, as loud transitioned Right, because they they did. They went from like, you know, Wu Tang, Bob D, Big Pum, Alcoholics. I, I was into Loud when they put out the Madcap record. Mm -hmm. You know, Jaron, I love that record. Um, and then there was a, there was a, a, an opening for for Raucous, and and that's when we just you know we went ballistic. We put out more twelve inches than you know probably almost any indie label at the time, uh, you know, uh, we had mega fandom, kids lining up around the block, kids spending thousands of dollars a year on raucous vinyl CDs. And you had your merch as well. I remember and the merch. merch. Yeah. And the merch was moving. Um, and it was just, you know, it was an amazing experience. You know, it was very concentrated. I think it was really about a, you know, five, six year period between 97, 2002, 2003, but it ended with, you know, uh, uh, amazing catalog, amazing lyricism. You know, I was listening to, you know, Black Star instrumental vi uh, vinyl a couple of days ago, just listening to high tech and I'm just like, this is so good. You know, it's, 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 it, it, I'm not going to, it even sounds better today. I mean, that's yeah, how, good. I mean, some of those records, I mean, are just timeless that, yeah. you know, you, you, you put them on now, you um, put them on in a club. No, and, uh, and I forgot know. to mention Fat Beats. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Fat Beats was our, I mean, they were our partners as far as, you know, all that vinyl clout when you'd walk into a a dj store in any city half the wall were, were raucous records um you know i remember you know working with you know we we had to work with a lot of promoters like we had to get airplay we had to do all that stuff and i remember one of the biggest promoters uh in the dc area he was up in philadelphia you know going from store to store and he's like, gave me a call. He's like, Brian, you're never, you know, you'll never be bigger than you are right now. He's like three quarters of the vinyl end cap in every store is raucous or raucous distribution. And it was amazing. It, I mean, it was amazing until the one day I, you know, uh, I walk in, everybody's got like this thing Napster on their laptops. I'm like, what's this? 
And then, you know, I had 10,000 songs on my laptop in a week. And, uh, you know, we, we knew it wasn't good. Uh, fortunately, we were able to stick it out. And, um, you know, the catalog found a good place in Universal Music Group. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm happy Jimmy Iovine um, cut a deal uh, with Jared and me. Um, and I'm really proud of the, the legacy. I mean, this is something that is, you know, a lot of it is, is lost. Uh, it's not like all the 12 inches are, you know, you gotta, you can buy them. Um, you know, a lot, some of the material is not available on, you know, the major streaming platforms. You know, we were very about live events and those moments, we, we really weren't the best archivists right? and catalog. Yeah. It's um, hard, yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I can say the same about us yeah, as well, yeah. Exactly, back then it wasn't- it Wasn't as easy. You know, we, um, nobody yeah. had phones, so it just wasn't right. that simple. Yes. I, I, you know, um, you know, uh, so I also, you know, obviously had a record label, uh, an independent record label, and it was great when you would start having success with an artist, but then when you had to start playing those games of radio, uh, like basically the big boy games, oh, yeah. um, that's when it started getting a little crazy. Um, oh, yeah. Can you tell one of your crazy uh, radio promotion stories, which... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I with, with a certain uh, certain person of them. who shall remain nameless. Yeah, I certainly won't. Uh, you know, I'm definitely not going to uh, describe the majority of my radio promotion experiences. I mean, I think for me, the most incredible moment of the experience of hearing your music on the radio, because for me, that, that's really what it was about. It wasn't really about going on the road and doing the promotion. Um, it was when we put out uh, Simon Says uh, by Farrah Monch. Simon Says, get the fuck up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, Jared and I were getting calls like, turn on Hot 97, turn on Hot 97. And you have to understand back in 99 like you you needed funk master flex on your team oh yeah it, nobody it played your records just because they because they liked them because <laughs> yeah. he was the the king uh as far as like that that entree that door into you know hits for the year and he got his Faramanch, uh Simon Says record. And then during, you know, drive time, prime, you know, prime time rush hour, you know, four, five, six o'clock traffic, he played that record 40 times in a row. And he just kept bringing it back, dropping bombs on it. And he played the record for about an hour. And I don't think he's ever done that with a record before wow um so you know having that experience being a new yorker you know uh you know in 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 hip-hop you know blasting the radio in your office with your whole team there 
and everybody's just bugging. You know, that was one of the highlight. You know, I loved our parties. You know, we threw some really mm -hmm. amazing events. But, you know, I, I remember that experience. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was magic. And, and before we sort of move on to, because you've done so much more since Raucous, um, I just want to just mention your the office, the classic office that was yep. on Broadway, uh, where there was a Keith Haring uh, mm -hmm. painting in the lobby, yeah. um, which was awesome. And then I think you had like three floors or two floors in that building. We had, um, uh, we had two floor through floors in kind of like that classic, fourth and broadway right new york uh, loft style industrial yeah. loft mm -hmm. yeah and uh really special place if you spend time there oh yeah and i mean one of my um main memories besides it being extremely chaotic with people running around and mm -hmm. a lot of stuff going on was your office uh that you guys shared where you basically you didn't have desks you sat no. on couches yeah. And I, I, that was, that to me was like, where's their desk, you know, and they're successful and they don't have desks. Cause I, I have a desk and I would sit at my desk. And when I had meetings, I would meet in the conference room, but you guys would just sit on the couch and um, yeah. just basically just riff and, and get the things done, you know? So. Well, I mean, it was a little more than riff, but yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. you know, you're, 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 you know, when you build a team, you know, it's not like everybody shows up day one with the skill sets and the experience, you know, no matter, and this will be a theme uh, of, of our talk, you know, it's really important that you allow people to become good at what they do in real time on the job. And, you know, I think, you know, we, you know, that's where I learned that, where I could bring somebody in who, this wasn't even on their resume. Right. Give them time, give them support, mentorship, experience, and then they could become the best at that. Right. Um, you know, that is, we didn't always hire, you know, and our people who came from major labels and you probably couldn't afford it. I mean, they were pr probably too expensive. You know? At a certain point we could afford it. I yeah. just, you know, nobody was packaging the way that we executive produced the music. It wasn't like the way the major labels, right. Uh, package music. And I uh, just, I uh, just want to also say a couple of other things before we move on. Uh, Brian and Jarrett, I, I, brought you guys on as consultants when I was setting up the independent wing of Giant Step Records. Uh, and you guys helped me uh, learn certain things that, you know, uh, stood in very good standing for me. Um, and then the last thing is when you guys uh, left Raucous, um, you were managing Sarah for a, for a, yeah. a little bit of time. Which yeah, we were managing uh, Jack Splash and Sarah. Wow. Um, you know, we, we probably would have made excellent managers. I just don't think we had the opportunities being that this was like a post Napster post LimeWire period. Um, there just wasn't enough for us to, to do for the artist that soon after the collapse. Yeah. Of, of the, the 
the industry. Yeah, but it was a so, good experience. Uh, you know, I loved loved working with Omas Keith, uh, who went on to, you know, work with, with Erica us. and yeah, yeah. And, and Frank Ocean and yeah. several others. I mean, yeah. Omas just Kendrick was as well, right? Yes, yeah. you know, real real genius. Yeah, uh, you know, Jack Splash too. Um, I think just by 2005, 2006, you know, we, I was very proud of the Rockers 50, which is kind of how we left things. Uh, that was in 2006, 2005-ish, uh, where we released 50 albums all digitally, all at once, um, you know, did a cooperative marketing plan for everybody, did the best we could. And that was, uh, at least to date, you know, that, that, that was the end of that particular part of the ride. Um, I'm sure that we'll bring it back though. I, we just don't know when, right. You know, that we still, we own the trademark. And, um, I think at the appropriate time, I wouldn't be surprised if we, uh, try this again. So, um, you know, the interesting thing about you guys is, you know, you, you saw the writing on the wall with the music industry. And whereas a lot of people just sort of like hung on for dear life and it was like they didn't know anything else or didn't believe that it was going to be that bad. You guys took the skills that you had applied within the record industry and the music industry and you then applied that to create successful companies in other fields you know so i think that's something that's very impressive and you know i, I want us to just to talk about that because i think we can learn a lot from 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 that well if you start as a patron your next move should be to continue to be a patron right um so uh i i, I think we saw the power of technology and of the internet and we wanted to be a part of that um you know the the internet was still a little weird back in 2005 2006 um certainly broadband was just kind of becoming available and um you know uh, still a large part of the u.s population doing dial-up right. uh, or didn't even have internet. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we were fans of um, certain music blogs, like Real Talk New York and the Smoking Section, Wrap Up, um, and we started to think about these early influencers, bloggers right, that they were the content creators and they also cultivated their own highly engaged audiences. And we saw that dynamic and it really attracted us. Uh, so we started, uh, you know, we became patrons of these sites. Uh, we started buying sites. Um, and creating destinations from scratch, like Warming Glow and ultimately uprocks.com. And then ultimately rolling up 
you know, the music, the sports, the television, the film, the wrestling, the, you know, you know, all the, all the categories into what became uprocks.com uh, was an amazing experience. Um, you know, treating the, the, the influencer, the blogger in the same way that we, you know, were patrons to, to lyricists and producers. And also, I mean, like these people, you know, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the next endeavor, but these were the rock stars of their era. You know, the, um, you know, the, this is, the, these were the important people. This is they the were, beginning. Let's, they were the underground rock stars. Yeah. Right. The same way you were, you were working with the underground hip hop artists. There wasn't, you know, we weren't, um, you know, when you think of influencer today, it was, it's different. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it was much, the scale was much smaller back then. Like if, if, if a blogger had a million visitors in a month, it was a big deal. Right. Yeah. If you had more, like, wow, right? This is way before Instagram, before mm -hmm. YouTube. Um, a great experience. Uh, it's still alive and kicking under the, the, the continued leadership of Jarrett. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we sold the company twice. Warner Music Group just recently bought it. Uh, and I, you know, it's still a badass. Um, and, and Talib... Um... Oh yeah, uh, Talib has his very popular, um, amazing show on there, which is like a continuation. I mean, the Jared, it's, it's Jared, but it's like a, you know, you've con continued that relationship, which which is awesome. So after after Uprocks, um, you then created well, another during, endeavor during during yeah. Uprocks. Right. Uh, I, I kind of became obsessed with uh, the Gregory Brothers. And, and who are the Gregory Brothers for the people who don't know? The Gregory Brothers are one of the first YouTube, uh, you know, uh, mashup, postmodern uh, musician, just content creators. Uh, and they'd have big, big mashups where they take a, a random vocal recording of something it could be like george bush or whatever it was and they would just chop it up and tune it and turn it into something utterly ridiculous i was um hunting them down uh because i wanted to work with them i was like this is this is um, you know i've never really saw anything like that before and that's when i met uh sarah penna who was kind of the de facto manager for a lot of these big YouTube stars. Uh, brought Jared into the mix and a few other people and, you know, turned something that was uh, informal, that was informal into something formal. She, she was, you know, she, she got organized. We incorporated, uh, you know, we, and, and, we started one of the, you know, one of the first YouTube studios, you know, otherwise known as a multi-channel network. And that was Big Frame, right? That was called Big Frame. Yeah. And, you know, we had 
artists like, uh, you know, Mystery Guitar Man and Corridor Digital and, um, you know, Jenna Marbles was a part of Big Frame in the beginning, um, although she outgrew us, she was so big. Uh, and, you know, what, what amazed me about the YouTube influencers, well, you had Mystery Guitar Man, it, it, it just incredibly talented musician, making his own instruments, making videos, the, the, just really crazy next level. I'm just gonna call it postmodern shit, mm -hmm. like just dope. Uh, you, had, you had these special effects wizards, Corridor Digital, who were doing these, you know, sci-fi special effects, action effects. It looked like it was coming out of, you know, 20th Century Fox or Disney. And they're just doing it like at home. Um, and then you had a Jana Marbles who just had, you know, enormous influence, uh, you know, as a, someone who's just leading women online in general. Um, and I just was, you know, I was kind of humbled by the influence that these YouTubers could have and just the, the, the kind of engagement, you know, it's one thing to go to a website, you know, and click around and you bounce. It's another thing to, you know, sign up, subscribe, and then show up every week at a specific time to consume the content. And that, you know, that level of engagement, um, you know, I'm, I'm still, uh, you know, I'm, it still drives me because of just the amount of influence and influencers that Autogen works with. But, you know, Big Frame taught me there was more than just music stars. There's more than the music industry in Hollywood and kind of the traditional modes of production, marketing and distribution that indeed artists don't need any of that. Right. right. And if, if they can lock in with a platform like YouTube, you know, and now it's more than YouTube, um, you know, they can achieve real independence uh, and have real freedoms. Um, and on power. A, and power as well. I mean, and power. Yeah. You know, and then you're not like, you know, beholden we, to to the big corporations. Even, you know, selling selling out. You know, there are consequences to selling out. It's just the way. It's just the nature of capitalism. Um. So. You know, had a had a had a great experience with Big Frame. It was frustrating. Because, you know, parts of early up rocks and big frame were frustrating because the, 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 the modes of monetization were, were, were nascent. Right. Um, you know, it, as an influencer, you really needed like a brand deal, right? You needed brand sponsorship. Without that, like you weren't making any money. Um, it, it's different now. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot about um, advertising from that experience. And, you know, I, I watched the, the value of blogger content and YouTube content be 
you know, commoditized, driven down by technology, okay, by the changing bid dynamics, okay, in programmatic advertising, uh, which were happening, you know, by 2006, certainly through 2010, everything was changing. And, you know, ultimately that, that led me to co-founding Onogen, where we work with, uh, you know, we call it the supply side in my business, but all, that's just um, a definition for the creative side, the publisher side. Um, so yeah, just just explain to people what what Audigen is, uh, because it's it's not really a consumer facing company. So you no. know, people might it might not mean anything, yes. but it touches their lives. So yeah. Audigen is a uh, it is a technology platform uh, for the sports, entertainment, and lifestyle industries. Um, we work. You know, you know, with a whole slew of companies, um, you know, certainly some of the leading music labels, you know, many of the leading publishers, uh, really the entire, the entire supply side. And what I mean is like everything, every, almost, you know, almost every website uh, we can work with, we can enable brands to connect with. Um, you know, we really wanted to create a, a, a data platform that was good for, you know, the right people, right? As opposed to everything just being good for a couple of companies, and uh, we know who they are. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we wanted to create opportunities for, for everybody else. Uh, and we've been, you know, the company is about four years old and we've been, you know, very successful. Um, so, so I think it's, you know, you know, building a tech company is extremely challenging, right? It's, it's, it's one thing building a company full of curators and marketers and promoters, um, it's another thing building a company, you know, where the tech stack is the personality, right? And where you need to allow people to learn in real time and to become good at their jobs. Like I could, in the beginning, we could not just hire a CTO. Um, shout out to my co-founder, Matt Griffiths. Uh, you know, we had to, hire the right senior data engineer and allow them to become that great CTO. Um, and it takes a lot of work. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's amazing. You know, the, 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 the people that are the most successful are the ones that they take it all in, they listen, they don't talk too much. They absorb it and they learn and, and they learn quickly. Like you fuck up, you know, you have to look at How that. Fix it. Yeah. Look at that feedback loop. Really look mm -hmm. at it closely. Yeah. You, can't, you can't fuck up again. Yeah. I remember um, 
uh, it's got to be like five years ago, we were sitting in Soho House and um, you said, I, I want to tell you about a company that I'm, I'm uh, about to right. uh, start. And you, you kept on looking around the room to make sure that no one could hear us. And I'm like, what's up with this? I mean, no one's, I mean, and then you told me about it and uh, I, I was like, well, I'm in, you know, <laughs> can we invest? Yeah, and and Esther and I invested on behalf of Giant Step as well. And, you know, um, it was, uh, and, and we just watched your company grow uh, and it, it's an incredible thing. Yeah, you know, you never know when you start um, whether it's going to work. I think if you just allow for no other, no other possibility, it, it, you, it works. Mm -hmm. you, you, you simply, you, you have to see yourself in the future after you succeeded, right? And you need to do everything you can do to take those baby steps because it, it, there's so many things going on in a technology company. You know, the planning, the planning tools, uh, everything is precise. Everything's documented, archived, all these tools that everybody's using, you know, stuff we did not have back in, right. <laughs> in, in, in 1995, 1996. And, you know, what, what I've witnessed this year is just how amazing everybody is, is working together during a pandemic. Um, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, it's testament to the quality of the people and their ability to learn on the job. Um, and, and technology in general that, you know, companies like ours were able to grow 300 plus percent year over year uh, at a time when many companies are struggling. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, everybody has to really look at, you know, what's happened in the last year. Um, this is the time to ascend and take your own game to the next level. Like totally. if you're selling yeah. fucking cupcakes at your mm -hmm. cupcake shop, it might be time to level up mm -hmm. and, you know, ship your cupcakes online. Mm -hmm. You know, get your Shopify on mm -hmm. and go crazy. Because that is the future. Yeah. You know, you know, we started with influencers getting money because they were lucky and they had a manager that can get them a brand deal mm -hmm. to YouTube and Instagram and Twitch and a few other platforms allowing for direct monetization, more on the creator's terms. And now we're in an age where I don't know if I need it. An OnlyFans uh, audience to pay my bills. You know, I could. I'm going to go to. Shop, I'm going to set up a store using Shopify. Right. And I'm going to go direct. Yeah. Uh, you know that we're 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 entering a whole new realm where the influencer is now going to become the the you know the e-commerce specialist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And data is the is going to drive all that expansion. 
yeah, the power of data. We we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, and I think you, you were hitting on a couple of good points there. I mean, what do you see in the future? You, where do you see all this going? Well, I mean, listen, we work with, with, you know, quite a few stars. And, you know, when they, you know, when a music star wants to team up with like Murakami and release all this limited drop merchandise, you know, working with us, you know, you know, they're going to make a lot of money. Right. So I see a lot of that, a lot more of that. I see, you know, more artists building their own brands, making their own, like, you know, I love the idea of scarcity, limited drops, you know, creating that urgency and closing the window after a certain period of time. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I think it's going to become more a percentage of artists' income. Like, we don't know how this event, events are going to right. reincarnate. When they're coming back, yeah. Right? So there's things like live tune-in. There's direct-to-consumer. You know, I see a lot more direct connections being made between artists and creator and their audiences. And, and you know, the, that is possible today. Um, and, you know, the last minute, Brian, you know, talk a little bit about your music because you, you are creating music. Yes. You've gone back to creating music, so. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, uh, I like to make music every day. Uh, end of the day is, is, is when it works out for me. Um, I'm working on a, a, a few projects now. One is called Loom, L-L-U-M. Um, we're about to start publishing stuff. Uh, just imagine, you know, uh, really banging uh, house music with a little bit more of a, a hip hop, um, hip hop drums at those tempos um, mixed with you know, modular synthesis and all these chopped up samples. So look out for that in the next six months. And I started making, uh, started making hip hop beats again uh, for the first time in, in years. Um, so look out for that. That'll be under the, uh, the pseudonym uh, Tut, T-U-T, Mr. Tut. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to go as far as, you know, I'm going to partner up with some MCs and take it quite seriously. Yeah. We're going to have to, um, I've got about 30 seconds left. So I wanted to, I wanted to thank you, Brian, for this very insightful, uh, I miss you. you know, insight. Yeah, I miss you too. Uh, Brian's in California. Uh, and also, I uh, want to tell everyone that uh, this Tuesday at 5 p.m., we're going to do another Instagram Live with Kevin Lyons. Kevin, uh, not only is he an amazing artist, designer, but he is behind the Giant Step logo, 5 p.m. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, R.I.P. Phil Asher, who unfortunately passed away today. Uh, we're thinking of his family. Um, and have a great weekend, everyone. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Peace. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to the Giant Step podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow us on Instagram at Giant Step. Music is by Cinego. Please also visit our website giantstep.net to learn more about our award-winning marketing agency.